Okay, this is Esther, chapters 1 and 2. And I've heard from several of you that you're really looking forward to this study in Esther. And I'm right there with you. We just learned from, well, our theme this year is the sovereignty of God, right? He's in charge of everything, and he's everywhere, and he's always been everywhere, and he always will be everywhere, and he's in control. Last, um, the last two weeks, we studied Ruth, and we learned that he's a God of love. He just loves us. He loves family. He loves marriage. He loves children. He loves us. So you take the sovereignty, and you add the love, and we're going to add another piece now with Esther called Providence. Because if he is all-powerful and all-in-charge and he loves us, that equals a providence. Providence means care or preparation in advance, a foresight or divine guidance, preparing something ahead of time because you know what's going to happen ahead of time and you're controlling it. So God's providence for his people is demonstrated in the book of Esther. Actually, the book, the whole purpose of the book is, tells us in chapter 928, when we get there, we'll look at that, but it's basically saying it's defining the origin of the Feast of Purim, and if you have a calendar, Purim's on our calendars, if you notice, every year, you know, most calendars will have Purim listed, And it's to ensure that it would be observed by all future generations of Jewish people. And the celebration, it's it's apparently the most joyous celebration that the Jews have. Um, And it's a celebration because they didn't get annihilated. And, 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 And God put it in this book, the story of Esther, right here, right after, you know, um, the end of the, um, Uh, the historical books, it's the last historical book, to remind the Jews throughout time that he's going to take care of them and provide for them and pretty much destroy their enemies. And we know in Revelations that's how the story ends. That's how the whole history on this earth will end. So, so providence is what we're looking at here. And the Feast of Purim um, is observed by the generations of the Jewish people. Pur means lot, And we'll look at that next week when we get into chapter 3, what the lots were cast for. In other words, man rolls the dice, but God controls the outcome. Now, God isn't in there with, you know, deciding what to do, but the whole outcome of whatever's happening, God's in charge. Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. And a lap is just, you know, when you're wearing a big shirt or whatever, and you're casting lots in here. But every decision is from the Lord. So I lay the foundation for that um, so we can kind of get a, set our minds on the right path here as we look at Esther. All right. Now we, we have King, now in the days of King Ahasuerus, or we can call him Xerxes. I might get tired of saying Ahasuerus, and I might say Xerxes, or I just might say the king. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on the royal throne in Sosa, the capital. 
King Xerxes, or King Harasserus, was the king at this time of the biggest, largest empire the world has known. He inherited this vast empire around 483 B.C. So we're not in the time of Ruth. We've kind of moved forward in time here. It's gone past the... Um, with Ruth, we had the judges, and then we go into Samuel and the, the area of the kings and King David and Solomon, and then we have the divided kingdom of um, Judah and Israel, and then we have the, um, the, the, ex, the captivity where the, Babylon, the Assyrians come in and then the Babylonians come in. And so this is taking place then where we have they're in captivity um, in the Persian Empire. So the Persian Empire... Uh, vast. We haven't seen anything like it before. It took up Turkey, and sometimes in the back of your Bibles, if you've got a study Bible, you can look at that, the Persian Empire. Turkey, Iraq, Iran, Pakistan, Jordan, Lebanon, and Israel, and parts of modern-day Egypt, Sudan, Libya, and Arabia. It was huge. Huge. And this king, Ahasuerus, is a new king. He inherited this from his father, Darius I. And Darius I, we're going to look at in Daniel 6. So we're going to go back in time when we get to, to Daniel. So long before Esther's time, the people, the Jews, were dispersed um, from the Babylonians and, and eventually the Persians took over all the all of this other land that the Babylonians had and everything. And so basically, all the Jews, or all the people that lived in that vast land mass, which covered a lot of the civilized world, if Haman's plot to exterminate all the Jews in the Persian Empire would have been fulfilled, it would have pretty much annihilated the Jewish race. So this is what we're dealing with here. It's worse than Hitler. Okay? That's why the Feast of Purim is something that's supposed to be remembered and celebrated throughout time. So let's take a look at what's going on here. That's, that's the king. He has been the king um, in verse 3. In the third year of his reign, he gave a feast. So he's only been a king three years. He's a new king. He's a new kid on the block. Got to flex his muscle. Got to show people that he, you know, he's the guy. He's the one in charge. He's, you know, his daddy left him with all this stuff now and everything. So he's going to show off his vast kingdom. And we have three feasts here that are happening to show off his vast kingdom. And that's how they pretty much kept authority over, over their subjects by impressing them with everything that they had and being generous with it and kind of winning everyone over to, hey, you know, I'm the guy. I'm the one in charge here. And so he, the first feast was with his army um, of all his nobles and governors of all the provinces, all that vast area. He was giving them a feast. And it went on for 180 days. And it says in verse 4, it showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness. Focuses all on him, right? Look at what a wonderful guy I am. I have all this stuff. You guys better keep in line. 
And after that feast was over, there was a second one that lasted a week, and that was for the people just in the capital of Sosa. Um, just the, the normal people, people live there and stuff like that, and they had it in the, the garden of the king's palace. Goes on in verse 6 to describe the white cotton curtains and, and that are held back by cords of fine linen and pur- or purple on silver. Ro- I mean, you get a visual of this. It would just be stunning. Um, mosaic pavement and porphyry, which is a type of rock that contains big chunks of crystal in it, so it sparkled. Marble, mother of pearl, and other precious stones. I mean, this garden, this palace, was just probably just breathtaking. So he's having a party there for a whole week. And they were, the, the drinks were flowing freely. The royal wine was there. And it says that there was no compulsion. He allowed them to do as they please. And because it's in here, I'm just going to mention this. Because if you were invited to a king's feast, everyone was obligated to take the first toast. Everyone was. And if you refuse that, you had to leave the party. So he's saying here that he didn't have that obligation. He didn't impose that on people. Now, why that would be, you know, I'm scratching my head on that, and why it's even mentioned in this book about that, I have one idea. I'll throw it out there. But again, this is according to me. If people have to do something, they do it begrudgingly. But if people are allowed to do whatever they want, they may freely go overboard and do more and more and more. So I'm thinking that there's probably more drunken people at this party than there would have been otherwise. That's just my guess on it. Anyways, um, there was a lot of royal wine going on. The third feast was the Queen Vasti put on for the women of the palace. To me, that sounds like the better party to go to. I don't know, but anyways. So the women were all hanging out together also. Again, this was this king wanted to impress everybody. Okay. Now, on the seventh day, at the end of this party, the king was very, very in good spirits, merry with wine, and, and he commanded his queen sent his eunuchs to go get the queen to bring before the, the, the feast here to show off her beauty with her royal crown on. Historians believe that it could be that these men were all sitting around getting real drunk and they're all kind of boasting about, well, I got the prettier wife. No, I got the prettier wife. And remember, this is a young king who wants to show off that he's the one with the best stuff. So... In his foolishness, go and get the queen. I'll prove to you how beautiful she is. You go and get her. You can all see how beautiful she is. She's mine, and she's the most beautiful one. So it was a disgraceful request for him to do this to her, to, to expose her immodestly, because it's pretty much understood that it was not... They wanted to see her beauty, the beauty of who she was. They had Olympics and stuff during the day where they did it naked. So the naked body was something that was worshipped even. So whatever she had on, whether it was just her crown or something scant or, or to dance for them or whatever it was, she wasn't doing it. She could not comply to this. This is a situation now that's set up 
foresight, planning ahead of time for the deliverer of the Jews to come into play. And in the story of Esther, I want us to, be, to, to pay attention and follow the, the thread of the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. Vasti, it was her choice not to go. But God gave Vasti her beauty, like he gave it to Esther. God gave Vasti this high-spirited, I'm not going to do that, because for her to say no to the king of this vast empire, that was a very dangerous thing to happen to her. She could easily have been killed in something like that. You just don't, I mean, she could have been killed for something far less. But the fact that the king commanded her to do this, and she said, no, could you imagine those eunuchs going back and saying, oh, you tell them, no, you tell them, you tell them, you know. (laughs) They maybe even gotten killed for delivering the message, I don't know. But for whatever reason, her high-spiritedness, her her sense of uh, uh, modesty, of not wanting to be gawked at or whatever it was, she says, no, she's not going to do it. She could not do something like that. People think, resolve, make decisions, and act for themselves. Yet, they fulfill the plans of God. And that's the mystery of what we're going to see as we look through this. God's very enemies in opposing him are made the instruments of actually serving him. I'm going to say that again without knocking my mic. God's very enemies in opposing him are made the instruments of serving him. Verse 12. She refuses to go at this time, and what happens to the king The king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. Party time's over for him. He's pretty upset by all this stuff, enraged. Okay? So, the king says to his wise men, according to the law, what is to be done with the queen? Because she's not performed the command that I asked her to do. And one of his guys, Maimokin, says in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against you, king, has the queen Vasti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all these providences. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all these women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt. They're going to hear that, oh, the queen said no. Well, hey, if she can do that, then I can do that, right? Now, there's some truth to this. Um, So the king, you know, you need to command Queen Vashti to be brought before him. If she did not come, they're all going to learn that they can do it also. They can take after the queen was the role model there. And there will be great contempt and wrath in plenty. Could you imagine if you had all these households in this great providence of 127, this huge massive thing, and all these, having these uproar of the women's liberation movement happening in there? It would be kind of disastrous in the time. Because we probably have that today, I don't know. Anyways. So, 
To stop this, they had to come up with something. And the counsel that is being given now was very difficult because if they came up with a plan, and they did to get rid of the queen, and if it failed, it would have been disastrous. So you can see the hand of God and working on all of this stuff also. They come up with a plan to get rid of her, to write a decree that she needs to be removed from being queen. All the women will give honor to their husbands and high and low alike if you discipline her like this and remove her. And to find someone better than her. Better than her. Now this... This guy that came up with this plan, could there be someone better than her? Did he know? He probably didn't know. He's just laying it out there. He's just kind of looking short-sighted. But God's looking at the bigger plan. Would the king even be able to give up the object of his admiration forever, this beautiful queen, for a cold-hearted reason of setting her as an example? Would he be willing to do this? These, these monarchs, you know, that had so much power, they never sacrificed on their own behalf. So was he even willing to do this, to give this up for the good of public policy? I don't know. He was either too drunk or too something that he just said, okay, I like that idea, get rid of her, get rid of her, take her out of my sight, and then find somebody else to do that. So... She's gone. But you can see the hand of God. Vasti had to be removed so that Esther, who's pretty much unknown at this point, can come in to her place. Now the people, the Jews were in captivity right now. They were uh, slaves. You know, They were kind of under the hand of the king of Persia. But he's a God, a sovereign God. He's their God. He loves his people. And he has care and provision for them. And he's demonstrating this throughout all of history. And to be remembered even in the end times when things start getting rough for God's people. Jeremiah 29.11 comes into mind. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. So, doesn't look too good right now for them. They're in captivity. Doesn't look too good for Queen Vashti. And we'll see what happens. In chapter 2, we kind of go forward. Off After these things, we're looking at about four years here because it's seven years when the, uh, Esther comes before him. So it's maybe three years, and it takes a year for them all to get ready. So several years down the road here. The king is not angry anymore. That's good. Uh, but he remembers the queen. And he also remembers the decree that he set up against her. But what's happened in this three or four time span is that the king made a massive invasion of Greece and it was unsuccessful new king wow all this wonderful stuff his attempt at his invasion failed so he comes back home defeated not feeling really good wanting to be cheered up 
He's thinking about his beautiful queen to cheer him up, but he can't call on her because it's a degree, degree that decree that she cannot come see him, and that's binding. So that's even making him more depressed. So we have a problem here. Chapter 2, verse 2, the king's young men who attended him, don't you like, notice this, it's the young men who come up with this idea. (laughs) The young men who attend him say, let's the beautiful, all the beautiful virgins of all over this whole vast empire, seek them out and we'll bring them here and, and bring them into this harem here in Sosa, the capital. Put them in the custody of Higa, which was the eunuch in charge of the harem, and we'll get them all dolled up and everything. And from this massive Miss Persian Empire contest, you get to pick your new queen. He likes this idea. It pleased him. And so that's what they did. They go out and they gather all these beautiful women The historian Josephus records that there were about a total of 400 women that were selected for this. 400 beautiful women that were pretty much taken, you know, some of them I'm sure were engaged to some men or whatever. They didn't didn't matter. They thought they were beautiful. They hauled them off to the capital here and put them in the harem. Um, So in verse 5, we get to know Mordecai. And there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai. And he was the son of Jer, the son of Simea, son of Kish, a Benjamite. His roots go to um, the Benjamites. Who had been carried away from Israel among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, and he was the king of Judah in 597 B.C. That's when the divided kingdom and the Babylonians came. Whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. Three times it makes a reference to Mordecai being carried away. Exile kind of defined his life and captivity. Carried away, carried away out of the land, out of the promised land. Carried away in captivity. And he was bringing up his um, Hadasha, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle. So his cousin, he was raising because her parents had died. And this young woman was, had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her parents died and she was orphaned, Mordecai took her as his own daughter to take care of her. So Esther was, was beautiful in form and lovely to look at, I guess we would say today she was drop-dead beautiful. God gave her the exquisite loveliness that she had. God gave her that for such a time as this. God created, just like he created Vasti with that high spirit and said, I am not going to do that because all these things needed to unfold. God gave, you know, that little king at this time, a young king, whatever, and made a foolish demand of something, or that all fell back. All these things foreplanned by God. And yet all these acting characters have free will in all this stuff. So Esther's beautiful, um, 
we may look at something like this and be repulsed at it that God would even use uh, women in a way like that, especially today. You could see how that would float. Um, It seems not ethical. It seems unkind to, 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 you know, pull out just the beautiful women or whatever like that. It just seems not a good thing. Almost an abomination in the eyes of God. Yet, yet, that was the only way Esther was going to get to become queen. Do you see it? That was the only way. No amount of money could get her there. This king had all that money. No amount of thinking up here didn't matter. It was her beauty. So God knew this, and so then he's going to use that, the lusts of man, the sins of man, people who are opposed to his laws to fulfill his purposes. Do you see how free will comes into play here with this stuff? Okay. Everyone, all of us, all of us who are called into God's family, all of us who take part in the advancement and the defense of the spread of the gospel of Christ's kingdom, we are all gifted by God. We are. We are all gifted by God with necessary qualifications to perform the works that he has laid out for us. Before time began, he had works for us each to to fulfill. And he's given us gifts and abilities and appearance and everything else to be able to fulfill those things. God-given things. An example, last year when we studied the Apostle Paul, he was an enemy of God, right? But man, was he a Jew of the Jews. He knew all that stuff. He knew it all. He was educated. He was stubborn, right? He had tenacity to keep going. And that's what was needed for to spread the, the gospel. And look what he did, um, Paul. He was an amazing guy, but God had gifted him with things, the necessary qualifications to fulfill God's will. All right, verse 8 of chapter 2. So when the king's order and his edicts were proclaimed, all these young women were gathered up, and they were brought into the capital in the custody of Hegel. Hega. And Esther was taken in and into the custody, and we have, he's in charge of all these women. And this young woman, Esther, pleased Hega. He saw there was something about her that was special. He could see her beauty and won his favor. And so he kind of zeroed in on her out of all these several hundred women, and he provided her with extra cosmetics and more food. Don't you love this? More food to eat. We'd all be on like, no, I'm on a, I need to get on a diet. Let me share something with you. This is a side note. Because I work with eating disorders. 200 years ago, 300 years ago, to be overweight and pale, that was a sign of beauty. You know why? You had enough money to eat and you didn't have to work in the fields. Today, what do we have? Skinny and tan. Okay? So anyways, they, he, they brought in food for her to, to get nice and plumped up and everything. So he didn't want any skinny little thing running around and all the cosmetics and everything like that to get her ready. So he was purposely zeroing in on, on Esther. And every day, Mordecai would walk the court 
to learn and find out how Esther was doing. He was keeping an eye on her. So the lusts of men, God was going to use that to, to fulfill his purpose. Um, he makes those people obey his will who don't even know him. He makes those people obey his will who even hate him, turning things around. Okay, Esther gets the attention of the eunuch in charge of the harem, and he advances her in all these wonderful things, but we find out that she's keeping her Jewishness a secret. Because um, Mordecai told her not to say she was a Jew. Okay. Anti-Sedemism was really bad. It's been bad throughout all of history. Now, when it would come time for each of these young women to go before the king, after 12 months, 12 months, they had six months, some kind of a soaking in, in myrrh, oil of myrrh, and then six months with spices and ointments, and I guess it would get rid of the age spots or smooth out the skin, and they plucked eyebrows, and he did all these wonderful things. I mean, it was pretty phenomenal for a whole year. They maybe kept him a whole year to make sure they weren't pregnant, okay? So these women, and it comes time now for Esther to go in. And as they would go in to the king and spend one night with him, if he didn't like it, well, whatever, after that one night, they'd go back. They wouldn't go back to the harem because they weren't virgins anymore. They became a concubine, and now they were captive in the, as a king's concubine for the rest of their life. They were lost, they couldn't be released. They couldn't go back and have family. They belong to him now. So these 400 women, plus he probably already had some in there, were just his little collection of these beautiful women. What a total, total waste and loss for these girls to have this happen. And so Esther goes in, and she doesn't bring anything with her except what um, Higa, or who was rooting for her, to bring. We don't, aren't told what it was. Um, and then she's released back to... Ashka's custody, I say custody, they say custody, of the concubines. All right. So, girl after girl after girl after girl. And Esther's term came, and she goes in, and she wins the favor. Before this, she wins the favor of everyone who was really with her. She was just, you know, I guess really drop-dead gorgeous and kind, and godly, and something about her spirit. Um, does she even want to be there? We don't know. Um, to marry a pagan king, that would, you know, you wonder what was going on in Mordecai's head. You know, he didn't have much choice with it, um, but he was keeping an eye on her and seeing what's going on with her. The king falls in love with her. Verse 17, the king loved Esther more than all the other women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than anybody else. And he gave her the royal crown, and he gave a great feast, Esther's feast, and just in, in honor of Esther, he you know, took a, granted a remission of taxes because he wants everyone to know he's such a groovy guy, and he's generous and everything, and he gave gifts, and it was just a huge, another big party celebration because he found his replacement for his queen. So, God's in charge. He put Esther here, the exiles in this area, 
He gave her a beautiful an eye for some. They could see her beauty, brought her in. Um, this eunuch that was caring for them saw this. All these things are unfolding because God knows the plans he has for his people. Plans for good. Now, they are in exile because of their, their sinful behaviors and stuff, but God is still caring for them through all this stuff. Okay, so we're going to wrap it up here with Mordecai. He's continuing to keep his eye on Esther and care for her. He'd hang out at the king's gate. We know from Ruth that that's where all the activity happened, business transactions. He would get updated on stuff. I don't even know if you could see the harem. I, I wouldn't be surprised if this king had his, his kingdom set up. So by the gate of his great city, um, it, they, they could all view his harem. You know, So when the girls would come out, sunbathe or do whatever they do all these men could go oh look at that king look at all the women he has look at all the splendor that he has so for whatever reason we know from scripture that he'd go to the gate and he kept an eye on Esther and found out about her so there may have been some visual there with being able to see Esther even make a hand contact with her or something um but again we it's reiterated here in verse 20 that Esther kept it secret that she was a Jewish. So, seizing an opportunity, maybe coming up strategically, but he told her to be quiet about it. At this point, I just want to insert something here regarding the book of Esther. God's name isn't mentioned in this book. Right? No mention of it. Doesn't say they worship God or the Lord or Jehovah or anything like that. But it's understood that he's there. So why? Why is the book of Esther here and this story recorded in history and his name isn't even mentioned in it? I think it's because God wants us to be obviously understood that he's in charge. We don't even have to, because everybody knows. It's so, it's so obvious that he's sovereign. It's so obvious that he loves his people. It's so obvious that he's providing providence for them. So obvious, we don't have to say the obvious. Does that make sense? We don't have to say the obvious. He's working behind the scenes. His people know he's working behind the scenes. He's always active, always active in the book of Esther and in our lives. Even though he's not mentioned, he's the one that's directing people's paths and everything. And he wants us to know he is the most obvious one involved here. And when you look at this story, it's not even miracles that are happening. It's just obviously God's hand that set all this stuff up. You can't explain it away from a miracle. It's God's sovereign intervention in what's happening here and his love for his people. That's what he wants to be understood in the book of Esther. This applies for us too. Whatever we're going through in life, whatever's happening in life, God is orchestrating it. Job says, though he slay me, I will serve him. Right? Building character, getting rid of bad habits, you know, trials and tribute, whatever's going on. He, it's, it's got to be obvious in our thinking We don't even question the absence of God because it's not there. All right, 
So Mordecai is hanging out. He overhears a plot that they're going to assassinate the king. They didn't like the king. He overhears this plot. So he, these two guards were talking about it. So Mordecai, in verse 22, he tells Queen Esther. There we go, Queen Esther. First time she's mentioned as a queen. And Esther told the king the name of Mordecai, what had happened. And they investigated it, and they found out it was so. And the men were both hanged on the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of Chronicles in the presence of the king. Now, I want to make a note here, let you guys know, being hung on the gallows isn't just strung up like this. Being hung on the gallows, quote, a pointed stake is set upright in the ground, and the culprit is taken and placed on the sharp point and then pulled down by his legs on the stake that went up through the fundament, passes up through the body, and comes up through the neck. This is what's Yeah, and I'm pointing it out to let you know that this was a pretty ghoulish, horrible time. The person lived in excruciating pain by having all these organisms severed for quite some time. Disciplines like this, punishments like this, were done to keep people in line, to keep them under the thumb. And it was done out in the public so all could see what was going on. We didn't dare step out of line because look what might happen to you. You don't dare plot, think, breathe, dream about assassinating the king because that's what happens. And it was recorded. Well, eventually, historically, that's how um, the king went out. He was assassinated. He was murdered by his prime minister, and Artaxerxes I was then put on the throne. So these kings were always, because of the vast empire and what they owned, they were always looking over their shoulder what's going on. So for something like this, it had to be a severe punishment. So it was recorded in the presence of the king. The book of Esther displays all the, hang in there, it's okay, I'm almost done, we're going to (laughs) sing. The book of Esther displays the wisdom, the providence, and the power of God in the preservation of his people and the destruction of their enemies. We don't have to worry about stuff. We don't have to fight the battles. He fights them for us. I want to just end with this little example of my granddaughter, my new granddaughter, to show you the providence of God. They couldn't find a name for this baby, round and round, this, that, and that. I thought they might go with a vowel because of Oliver and Ezra. I thought, so I was dropping Anna and different vowel names. Well, you know, I, that didn't fly. And then they kept up with these other names. And, and part of Celia's problem was she's trying to get the whole family to agree upon a name. But anyways, they finally came up with the name Winnie, Winnie Bell. Um, and it's because of some kind of quick labor that she has and, some, and taking penicillin or whatever, she had to schedule an induction thing. And so the hospital set up the date of January 18th. They picked that date for her. Um, and the day before, it was the 17th, she was um, at the restaurant 
and the, the employee that takes the reservations down for the following day, which would be the 18th, always writes on a holiday on the page. Christmas, Mother's Day. Well, she was over there, and she saw Winnie, National Winnie the Pooh Day. No lie. <laughs> National Winnie the Pooh Day was yesterday when Winnie was born. Now, I know, and, and, I'm, and I'm thinking, why are you letting this happen, God, when we're studying this? But can you see, can you see his hand? What a, what a wonderful example of how he works, even in those little details of life. I'm, I'm going to believe that probably there's a lot, lot of Winnies out there that are born on it. It's the birthday of the author, apparently, um, January 18th. But he loves us. He loves us. And he's going to take care of us. And he only wants good and, and prosperity for us, not disaster. So we've got to really get rid of anxiety, doubt, and have our eyes more open to see his hand in everything that's going on. Let's pray. God, we are so, we're amazed at you. We're just amazed at you. In every detail of life you care, you go before us, you hem us in behind. We live in the palm of your hand, we're the apple of your eye. Forgive us for the times where we doubt this. Help us to just, just lavish in your love that you have for us, almighty God. And, and help us to take this with us from here on out, to just take this knowledge of how great a God you are. We love you, Jesus. Amen.